Anybody who's sane would agree with me that snow shoveling should be a winter Olympic event. Okay, this is Hebrews 2020, and we see Jesus. And it's increment 102. The title is Halagos to Theu, the Word of God, Part 2, Roman numeral 2. We'll be going to Hebrews 4.12. So, Father, I'm all yours. I pray that you'll manifest and make known your word by the Holy Spirit and through this willing vessel. And we thank you for this opportunity. As the word of God goes forth today, may it reach many willing vessels who receive it in faith and unite themselves with a people of faith in order for our own time and our own history to be redeemed. We ask this in your name, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4 is the verse we're working on fine-tuning, an accurate translation from the original Greek text. It says, indeed, the word of God, there's our title, halagos to theu, is currently living and active. Now, whatever time in history you say that the word of God is alive and living or active, then it is that at that moment. It's currently living and active on the level of our own time as it was on the level of the time of the writing of the Hebrews homily, as it was in the time through Moses when, and through Joshua and in the Old Testament scriptures, so it is today. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade. Notice I did not translate that sword at that time, where it's usually translated, but blade. I'll explain a little more why. Indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit. Then we have kind of an almost an exclamation in the middle of this verse. It says, joints and marrow. We think of the separation of soul and spirit, and we liken it to the separation of joints and marrow, that is, cutting a joint from a bone, which is what would happen when the priests separated the body parts of the animal sacrifices. So, and they did so with a very sharp implement. And so this has not only a reference to machaira, which is a sword, a weapon used in warfare, but also to a knife used by priests, at least an oblique reference to that. That's why I use the word blade here. So we have again, indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the deliberations and intentions of the heart. Now, the reason that, again, we translate this, or at least I did, as blade for what is normally translated as sword, which the Greek has 
Machaira is, again, because as we've noted, Machaira is also used to, as the word to describe the knife that Abraham was going to use to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22, 6, and in Genesis 22:10, that word is used in the Septuagint in both cases, Machaira. And so the knife that Abraham was going to use. So we have, see, an oblique reference here to the blades used in sacrifices. And so, again, we have a fluency of the word of God with the coming up or the upcoming treatment of the priesthood and the sacrifices and the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's also this word, Machaira, is used to describe the flint knives, the knives that were to be fashioned out of flints, flint, flinty rock, at a place called the Hill of Foreskins. That's the English name for a Hebrew title. And that knife was used to circumcise the Israelite fighting men whose birth had taken place in the desert on Israel's journey from Egypt to the land. Now, that's found in Joshua 5.5, 5, also Joshua 5.2 and 3. In fact, it's probably good to read Joshua 5.1 through 6 to get that. All of the fighting men that came out of Egypt, that whole generation of the fighting men that came out of Egypt, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, died in the desert. And we know why. We spent almost what some of you might consider too much time on the fact that people died in the desert because of lack of faith and lack of mixing their faith with the word of God, with the word of God through Moses, the word of God through Joshua, the word of God through the ten spies or the ten scouts of the land. So once again, that word Machaira is used for the flint knife that circumcised the Israelite fighting men who, not the ones who came out of Egypt, but the young men who were born in the desert wanderings and therefore the next generation, they received circumcision before they went in to conquer Jericho and to conquer the giants in the land. And there's much to be said about that. So all the fighting men of Israel who had come out of Egypt were dead because they had not heeded the voice of the Lord, it says. Consequently, as we considered all too well, the Lord determined that they would not see the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, to the patriarchs. That mainly refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, here again, this promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had not been realized by either Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob during their lives on this earth. And that's significant. As Hebrews 11.13 says, they and others lived their whole lives while they embraced a promise that they never saw fulfilled in their time on this earth. Does that mean they won't see it fulfilled? Of course not. And also Hebrews 11.39 hints at why they did not realize those, the fulfillment of those promises, which is a land that goes far beyond a piece of real estate in the Middle East, obviously. In fact, the land that they're going to inherit 
is the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth, and not only the earth, but the cosmos itself, the renewed universe in Romans 4.13. So that's not too bad. They lived their lives while embracing the promises, Hebrews 11.13, and died without receiving their fulfillment. And this is an example for us. Many of us are going to live our whole lives without having received the total fulfillment of what we would have desired for our lives, for our children, for our children's children, etc. But we will realize those promises in the life after life, which is a life after death, which is a life after life after death. So all of the fighting men strewn across the desert because they didn't believe. But there was a new generation of fighting men. And they were going to go into the land that was promised to their ancestors, to the patriarchs. Now these patriarchs once again lived their lives while embracing the promises and died without receiving their fulfillment. The reason, 1139 of Hebrews, they weren't going to be perfected without us. The solidarity of all humanity in Christ Jesus will eventually be realized. And as Jesus said about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he said, he is the living God, and he is God of the living, not of the dead, and that to him all are living. I've said that many times. I don't know how much the significance of Luke 20, verses 37 to 38, dawns on people, but we need to be more attentive to it. So once again, Jesus said, God is a God of the living and not of the dead, and to him all are living. All are living. That includes all of creation. That includes, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who from the viewpoint of his opposing Sadducees were dead and buried, end of story. To them, death is the end of everything, end of story. Dead, buried, end of story. Dead, cremated, end of story. That's the Sadducees' view because they believed neither in the bodily resurrection nor did they believe in angels. They did not believe in the unseen realm because they did not understand the scriptures which would have divided between their souls and spirits. And so Jesus said, you err, you err, you are mistaken because you don't know either the scriptures or the power of God. The land that they were to inherit is not Canaan, ultimately speaking, but the renewed and transfigured cosmos, as it's called again in Romans 4.13. And the city for which they looked in Hebrews 11.10 is a heavenly Jerusalem, not the present one, for here we have no continuing city. Hebrews 12.22 in combination with, I put that as ICW, Hebrews 12.22. They will be perfected along with us, according to Hebrews 11.40, in the bodily resurrection. At that time, 
there will be a solidarity of all humanity in Christ. He will fill all and be in all. He will be all and fill all, which is already hinted at in the new humanity, Colossians 3.11, Ephesians 2.15, where the enmity has been destroyed. We live in a time in which enmity is multiplied, enmity is magnified everywhere across the land, at least in our country, but elsewhere too. It's the very enmity that is slain or slaughtered at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be there in the renewed cosmos. There will not be hostility or enmity between people groups. So that which usually translated as the general word thoughts in Hebrews 4.12 is the word ennoia. And ennoia is usually, again, it's translated thoughts, but that kind of is a lazy way to translate ennoia, E-N-N-O-I-A in the Greek text. That which is usually translated simply as thoughts, that's a soft E with accent there, ennoia, more specifically means deliberations. That's like when you're thinking about what you're going to do. Likewise, the word usually translated as intense is E-N, again, E-N-T-H-U-M-A-T-A-E-S-Epsilon-E-Omega-O-N, enthumation. Usually translated as intense, but I think, again, more accurately, it should be resolutions or decisions that lead to actions. We have an illustration of that with Daniel. When they were told by their captives to eat from the king's menu, Daniel resolved in his heart not to eat from the king's menu. He put together his own menu, and after a 10-day period, revealed that he was stronger, more stout, and healthier than those who went by King Nebuchadnezzar's menu or diet. But Daniel resolved in his heart not to eat of the king's diet or the king's menu. So it's a resolution. So that's why I translate, indeed, the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit joints and marrow, and it's able to judge, and that means critically assess, the deliberations and resolutions of the heart, the resolutions to actions. Intention isn't too bad there. Resolutions is, I think, a little better, or determinations, we might even also say. So, once again, if you're very astute, you are recognizing that once again we find ourselves on the fourth level of the rational intentional consciousness called the heart, cardia in the scriptures. In assessing the heart's deliberations that lead to decisions, the word of God also assesses or evaluates the judgments that one has made on the third level of rational consciousness. And in doing that, it judges the insights that one claims to have had on the second level of the soul's 
intentional consciousness. In other words, when the word of God penetrates into the fifth level of con- fourth and fifth level of consciousness, it assesses deliberations and resolutions and determinations made there that lead to decisions and actions. And in doing that, it judges the judgments that we come to after reflection on insights we've had. So it penetrates to the whole heart. The whole universal person is assessed by the word of God. So in assessing the heart's deliberations that lead to decisions, the word of God also assesses or evaluates the judgments that one has made on the third level of rational consciousness. And I'm going to get a little more practical with this in a moment. And therefore, it judges or assesses the insights one claims to have had on the second level of the intentional consciousness. These insights, in turn, are evaluated. So we may say, I have an insight. But the Lonergan said this one day, and I thought it was profound. He said, insights are a dime a dozen. Insights themselves need to be assessed as to their reality, their validity, their authenticity. So the insights that we have, so-called insights, are evaluated and found to either be true acts of understanding or misconceptions, false ideas, either due to a refusal to hear the word of God or failure in the manner of hearing the word of God, not being attentive, or the hearing and appropriating of lies apart from the word of God. That's why when we say quidsit in the Latin or what is it, and we come to an answer, that answer is an insight. But the insight then has to be evaluated by reflection. And we ask, onset, is it so? So we can have an insight, and insight is, insights are dime a dozen. You can have insights all day long, but you have to allow them to be assessed and evaluated. You might have what you think is an insight that the multiple billions of people are going to spend eternity in a post-mortem judgmental fire from God. But you have to evaluate that insight under the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. You'll find that that's not an insight at all, but an oversight of truth, an oversight and a misconception, a terrible one, and a, one that has been horribly destructive to thousands and thousands, no, millions, maybe billions of souls in this life. So that's how important an important, that's how important a proper interpretation of the word of God is. Insights, then, are also evaluated by the word of God as to whether they are true acts of understanding or misconceptions, false ideas, false ideas that become ideals that become idols. They come about either through a refusal to hear the word of God or a failure in the manner of hearing it when you do hear it. And that's why Jesus said and told his disciples and all of us, all human beings really, not only to be careful what we hear 
in Mark 4.24, but also to be careful how we listen in Luke 8.18. Undistracted is what he's requiring. Listening carelessly and without due attentiveness to the teaching of the Word of God can, and I must say often does, lead to wrong conceptions, false insights. An example of this, again, is when people listen or when they read the metaphorical language of the Scripture and fail to discern its figurative or metaphorical meaning or its poetic style. When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, those that were around him that didn't have the perception of his metaphorical style, his poetic and figurative speech, thought he was telling them to do something unspeakable. If people do not understand or appropriate the metaphorical or figurative language of Scripture, then what a preacher says, including Jesus or a prophet, becomes scandalous. They were scandalized by him, it says in later on in John 6. So listening carelessly and without due attentiveness to the metaphorical language of the Scripture and failure to discern its figurative or metaphorical meaning or its poetic style leads to crass literalism. Crass literalism has led to false interpretations of Scripture. It has led professing Christians into actions that cause the real way of truth to be slandered and perceived as evil. Christianity is coming into a place now, and I use that term loosely and generally, where it's perceived by millions of people to be evil. Now, of course, we, we're shocked at that and say, well, you, that's, that's blasphemy. But many times what's perceived to be evil is evil. It's an evil rendition of Christianity. It is believers that are running around, or at least supposed believers, running around telling people they're going to perish in hell if they don't behave or if they don't believe. And this is what Second Peter 2.2 says happens. As a result of their behavior, their distorted behavior, the, right, the way of truth, the real way, the authentic way of Christianity is spoken evil of. So the insights that people come to from the scriptures, they say, I got this from reading the Bible. The insights that people come to from the scriptures when they are not careful how they hear or how they read actually become oversights or acts of misunderstanding. So out of this arises a thesis. This thesis is of great importance. I'll word it this way. The word of God creatively and critically assesses the deliberations and intentions of the heart. Listen carefully to this. It is most important. The Word of God creatively and critically assesses the deliberations and intentions of the heart, even as the love of God is being poured out in our hearts. They are simultaneous, simultaneous divine actions. The Word of God assessing the Holy Spirit pouring out love in Romans 5.5. 5 
simultaneous. There is a simultaneity in this. And that is more important than you could imagine because no commentary that I know of has addressed this in the interpretation of Hebrews 4.12. It's most important. And this is what happens under the ministry and the teaching of the word of God. As the scripture says, he who keeps the word in him or in her, the, the love of God is perfected. So there is a simultaneity of the word of God creatively and critically assessing the deliberations and determinations of the heart, even as the love of God is being poured out in our hearts. Now, we sometimes wonder why the Hebrew writer didn't directly allude to Zephaniah 3.17. For one of the translations of Zephaniah 3.17 is, says God will rest in his love. It does not say that in the Septuagint, and that's why the writer probably didn't directly allude to it. But Zephaniah 3.17 is important for other reasons. And in the Greek text, Zephaniah is actually Sophanis. S-O-P-H-O-N-I-A-S. Sophanias is how it reads in the Greek, in the Septuagint or the Greek translation. So Zephaniah is Sophanias. And Sophos is related both to wisdom and to soteriology or salvation. Sophonias, let's call it that, 317. And I tried to get this as best I can from the Greek text. And I always use the New English translation of the Septuagint by Pirtesma and others, as well as the, I think it's the Sir Lancelot version of the Septuagint translation. It says, the Lord your God is in you. A mighty one will save you. He will bring gladness upon you and make you new in his love. He will rejoice over you with delight as on a day of feast. That day of feast could be translated as sabbatismos, the eternal day, the day of salvation in 2 Corinthians 6.2, or the jubilee year, which is an eternal day also. But notice what it says, and what I want to emphasize here, he will bring gladness upon you and make you new in his love. The word of God assesses the determinations, the deliberations, the determinations that lead to actions in our hearts by renewing us in his love. There is no assessment of us by the word of God, which is a judge or a critic, without pouring out love in us at the same time. God is who he is in his word. We learn that from the Targums profoundly. God spoke definitively and finally in his son in these last days, in Hebrews 1-2. And our doing and living theology series is helpful here. But God is who he is in his son. That's why his son said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. God, even God in his word, as the Targums put it, for example, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, God, even God in his word, is in you. As his spirit pours the love of God throughout our hearts, 
in Romans 5, 5. So his word at the same time judges the judgments that we make and the conclusions that we make and the beliefs that we hold as a result of those judgments. The conflated or simultaneous action of the spirit and the word conforms our judgments, the conclusions we make in our mind. It conforms our judgments to love. As the Holy Spirit pours the love of God throughout our hearts, God's word judges the deliberations that we make, which in turn are based on the judgments we have come to after reflection. In doing so, the word judges the insights we have and the insights that we've come to as a result of inquiry. Again, Lonergan made the point that insights are a dime a dozen. I don't remember exactly where that is. It's one of the 10,000 pages I've read by him. That's a little exaggeration. But not, he meant not all insights are true insights. At least that's how I would interpret those words. Some so-called acts of understanding, and what is insight but an act of understanding? But some so-called acts of understanding are really misunderstandings. Sometimes we don't know what spirit we are of, as Jesus made clear in Luke 9.55. We don't know what spirit sometimes is enlightening us, so-called enlightening. The adversary often appears as an angel of light, a conveyor of light, a messenger of light, an angelos of photos in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan's servants alleged to be ministers of righteousness. And sometimes they even disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. It's all in there in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15. And so you have a lot of people that claim to be ministers of Christ. They claim to be evangelists. They claim to be pastors and teachers. And yet they are ministers of self-righteousness. And so they are really conveyors of false light. And if the light that's in you is really darkness, Jesus said, man, is that darkness dark. The word of God assesses our insights. Millions of Christians and non-Christians alike have accepted the oversight that there is a post-mortem place of eternal fire and punishment of sinners or of people who have not believed in Jesus or behaved according to God's standards, whoever your God is. We didn't know what spirit we were of when we believed and liked that hell doctrine. Those who don't have the spirit of Christ don't belong to him, says Romans 8, 9, B. And by that, I would interpret these, I would say this on the basis of Romans 8, 9, B. Holding to a insight or an insight, a so-called insight, that there is an eternal post-mortem hell for countless millions of human beings as well as angels, in holding that, we don't belong to him. We aren't of him. 
We can't go to say, I'm representing Jesus Christ and I'm telling you billions of people are going to perish in a hopeless post-mortem punitive fire. You aren't of him there. You aren't of the spirit of Christ. You don't even know what spirit you're of when you preach that way and teach that way and so-called witness that way. So holding to the so-called insight, which is really an oversight, that there is an eternal post-mortem hell for countless millions of human beings, including infants in a place called limbo, is how some people hold it. We aren't of God when we say that. We don't say that from the spirit of Christ in us who laid his life down for us. So by that I mean the spirit of Christ was not the one who pre-moved us to believe that doctrine and to accept that oversight. The Holy Spirit never pre-moves us or stimulates us to hate other people and to think wrongly about God's essence and being and name and act. How can we say that we belong to Christ if we think and intend contrary to him and don't have his mind about anything? And how can we say that we belong to Christ and have the spirit of Christ while we're not being pre-moved by the Holy Spirit and while we are in fact being pre-moved by the spirit of this evil age. How can we say that we belong to Christ and operate in his spirit if we delight in the destruction of other people's lives and even rejoice at at the prospect of an eternal damnation for countless souls? You see, there is a spirit who's called the spirit of this age, this evil age. Ephesians 2, 2, Galatians 1, 4. The God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And it's not the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the age, also known as the prince of wandering airborne spirits, in Ephesians 2, 2, compared with Matthew 12, 43, He intends to steal and to kill and to destroy in John 10.10. People who cry out for so-called social justice and then destroy in the name of that call are not from God. They're certainly not operating in the spirit of Christ and they are in fact operating in a spirit that is quite anti-Christ. So, the spirit of this age, the prince of airborne spirits who works in the sons and daughters of disobedience intends to steal and to kill and destroy. John 10.10 talks about it. Contrary to the thought and the intention of the good shepherd and the savior of all humankind, who lays down his life for the sheep in John 10:11 and 1 John 3:16 the great shepherd of the sheep is what he's called in Hebrews 13:20 whom the god of peace has brought up from the dead he's the firstborn 
from the dead into a new future world. For the intention of the good shepherd, also known as the great shepherd of the sheep, and he's one person, the good shepherd who lays his life down, the great shepherd who's been led up from the dead, his intention is related to the dynamic state of love and the law of the cross. So when the word of God assesses our deliberations and our determinations, it does so to reconcile them or rectify them so that they are conformed to the mind and the intention of Christ, which is always related to love and to the law of the cross, whereby the evils of the human race are converted into a supreme good by the power of love. For us, the rest, therefore, that is entered. And the rest is nothing more or nothing less than the peace of soul that comes with total trust in God. It isn't, well, maybe if I pray, I'll rest. It isn't, well, maybe if I do this, I'll rest. It's, if I witness, I'll rest. If I go to church, I'll rest. If I worship, I'll rest. No, you rest without doing any of those things, but trusting in the living God. For us, the rest that is entered and the Sabbath observance that remains for the people of God is actually the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus, who conforms us to his reality. For he is reality, and he conforms us to his reality. And it's a, it's a way of living that in the Holy Spirit who assimilates us to Christ. Let me say that again. For us, the rest that's entered and the Sabbath observance that remains for the people of God is for now the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus who conforms us to his reality, capital R, and life in the Spirit who assimilates us to Christ. The entry into that rest requires a separation of soul from spirit. Soul, which relates to sense and is subjected to a world of sense and sensation. That's why addictions are had in the realm of the suke, not in the realm of the pneuma. The suke is subjected to and subordinate to a world of sense and sensation. That's why people get addicted to the sensation of sex or to the sensation of chemicals or to the sensation of entertainment or to the sensation of taste and food and certain kinds of foods. And this is because they live in the psychikos person. And so the word of God distinguishes and penetrates to the separation of the suke, suke soul and the natural man, as it's called in 1 Corinthians 2.14 sometimes, and that's pretty good, from the spiritual, the spiritual person, the spiritual man or the spiritual woman, penumatikos in 1 Corinthians 2.15. In fact, the soulish person, the person only oriented to sense and sensation and to literalism, that includes, cannot perceive the things of God. No way. It's not going to happen. And they're always judging people who are spiritual, but the spiritual person 
understand, not only understands the word of God, but doesn't think much of being judged by a soulish person. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 4.3. Let me think of little things that I can think of. And the least of the little things I can think of is that you judge me to the Corinthians, he said. Your judgment of me. Now, today, the judgment of other people on us means so much. We must be liked. We must be loved. We must be accepted by them. We must be approved by them. Paul said, that's the least thing in my life is how you judge me. And that's because he was a spiritual man. He didn't give a damn what people thought of him that were Sukikas people. Come on. What a waste. It's a waste of life to allow people and their opinion of you rule you. That's a Sukikas person. All addictions are had in the Sukikas man, not in the Pneumatikas, although there is one addiction to the Pneumatikas, as Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. You can become addicted, 13 to 15, to the ministry of the word of God. You can be addicted to the ministry of the saints, to the service of the saints. In other words, you can be addicted to good things that have good results instead of bad results. It's called being addicted to sowing to the spirit and reaping a harvest of eternal life rather than being addicted to sowing to the flesh and reaping a harvest of misery in this life. And so, once again, it's important that the word of God penetrates to a division, creates a separation between soul and spirit, because the spirit is subjected to God and orientated to the heavenly world, the world to come, the future world, which can be experienced in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree even now. There's an alliteration for you. In meaningful measure, two M's, and a discernible degree, two Ds. And so, for those who are reading the notes, the notes are the most important form of this message, not the spoken form, although I think, again, if you want to matriculate in this class, you have to have both. There are things I say on the spur of the moment in the Holy Spirit as I teach this word that are important that won't be in the notes, but there are also things in the notes that aren't in the spoken message. The conflation of the two, I think, would be helpful to you and to your spiritual lives. And I'm just saying that that might be the case. So, the junction of the spirit and faith is the spiritual life. The spiritual life or the higher integration of human living is simply the junction or the conflation of the human spirit with faith and the junction of the human spirit with the Holy Spirit also, who evokes that faith, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. For one is said to have a spirit of faith. Remember that? 2 Corinthians 4, 13. It doesn't say you have a soul of faith. It says you have a spirit of faith. When there is a spirit of faith, the soul is saved as a result. In other words, when you're operative primarily in the spirit that's subjected to God, your soul benefits by that. Not only that, when you are subjected to God and only when you are subjected to God and when we are, do we resist the devil and he flees from us. It doesn't just say resist the devil. 
and he'll flee from you. It says submit to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Because what you get from submitting to God is the omnipotent power of God invested in his word, which you speak, which resists successfully the prince of darkness and even sends him packing, at least for a little while. He's always coming back. He always comes back as he did even with Jesus. And so, where there is a spirit of faith, the soul is saved. That's what Hebrews 10, 39 says. But when the soul sins, it says that a soul that sins dies in Ezekiel 18:4. Hesuke he hamartanusa aute apothenatai. The soul that sins will die. And that's also found in James 1.15 and, and Romans 8.6b. We've all experienced that kind of death. And it isn't physical death. We're tempted. We're, something is alluring to us. We consider it instead of shut it down. We eventually consider it to the point where we go after it. We do it. And when we do it, it then brings forth the experience of death. It sometimes brings forth the experience of terrible guilt and debilitating shame. And then we need to acknowledge that we have sinned. And that's what we used to call rebound. And that's probably not a bad word for it, but you can be obsessed with rebound and think that that's the whole thing. So your life becomes a trampoline rather than a life that's hid with Christ in God, where you need to acknowledge sin once in a while. Not every single day and before every single message and at the end of every hour and all through the day. That's consciousness of sin, not consciousness of the once and for all and forever sacrifice for sin that Jesus Christ wrought on the cross. So, the word of God penetrates to the division of soul and spirit. And it's a critic of the ideation. Now, ideation is a tough word, but I have to search for words that can make a precise interpretation of the scriptures. Ideation is simply the generation of ideas, the production of ideas. In the soul and in the spirit, there, are the, there is the production of ideas, and it's simply called ideation. And I believe that ideation is related to ideology and ideology can become idolatry. And so the word of God is a critic. It's a, it assesses critically the thoughts of the heart with the reason that we're going to explain, for the reason that we'll explain. You see, the word of God penetrates the division of soul and spirit. It's a critic or it's an assessor of the ideation which is the production of ideas and projects. It's, it's the place where activism is born based on ideation. And the intentionality of the heart is also checked, rectified, and reconciled, really, with the mind of Christ. Ideation includes the ideologies that we hear so much about today. They are sets of doctrines shared by a sociopolitical group that forms a system and that may include biases and often results in certain kinds of activism 
sometimes violent activism. So ideation sometimes includes idolatry. But when men and women share the same spirit of faith, on the other hand, there's an intersubjectivity on the fifth level of consciousness in which there is the power for the redemption of history and for bringing something beyond social justice. Social justice does not redeem history or satisfy those in need of it. Love does that. Only love does that. That's coming up. Perhaps it'll come up in, well, increment 103. So when men and women share the same spirit of faith, there's an intersubjectivity on the fifth level of consciousness. The spirit of faith shared by many offsets and overcomes the effects of idolatrous ideologies whose belief and beliefs lack the faith of which the Bible speaks. Faith that is a responsiveness to the word of God, faith that is in Christ Jesus, and that is ultimately a participation in his own faithfulness. Now, we're going to move down to a close here. This, these are all reflections and meditations around the Word of God and what it does and what it is and what it means. The final act of the Word and the Spirit is not judgmental. One commentator I read recently said, this whole thing in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is dealing with the judgmental vision of God. In one sense, that's true, but we hear the word judgmental and we think that it means censorious or condemnatory. That's not what is being meant here at all. Although destructive thoughts are in fact critically assessed and expelled by the word of God. God's word brings every thought and every project for that matter into obedience to Christ as 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6 teaches. That's all coming into play here, but I want to stay as lean as I can to the text here without going too far off and fanning too far out so that we kind of get into a nebulous area. So what we have here is that the idea that the final act of the word, capital W, and the spirit, capital S, is not judgmental in the sense of being condemning or censorious. That's not what the judgment of God is about. The action of the word and the spirit is a loving renewal, as we learn from Sophonismos or from Zephaniah 3.17. The action of the word and the spirit is a loving renewal by assimilation of our thoughts and intentions or our deliberations and determinations to the love of Christ, Romans 8.35, 2 Corinthians 5.14, 2 Corinthians 10.4-6, as we just mentioned, Ephesians 3.19. The Word of God is ultimate reality, capital R. Jesus is ultimate reality, capital R. Jesus is the Word of God. God is is who God is in his word. Or as the Targums say, 
I, I in my word, am he. That's Targum Neophyte of Deuteronomy 32.39, one of my favorite verses, my favorite of all in the Targums. And in Targum Neophyte of Exodus 12, 12 to 13, God says, and I, in my word, and in the marginal gloss it says, I will be revealed in my word. Quite a thing for the Old Testament to say, especially when Jesus Christ is the word made flesh who reveals God and ultimately reveals God in his crucifixion. Because he said, when you have lifted me up, which is what they did with the sacrifices of the Old Testament, then you'll know that I am he. I am he. The crucified God is the God of the Bible. And it's, his, it's there that his love was manifested universally, that his love was manifested in a way that brings a universal impact that's both creative and redemptive. Much more on that to follow. So, I and my word. And again, Exodus 12, 12 to 13, Targum Neophyti, N-E-O-F-I-T-I. And I, in my word, will pass through the land of Egypt this night. And I, in my word, will defend you. Marginal gloss says, my word will defend you. Notice the word has a defending action, a saving action, a delivering action, a preserving action, James 1.21. And then the Cairo Geniza Targum, that's Cairo like Egypt's Cairo, C-A-I-R-O, and then Geniza, G-E-N-I-Z-A-H. The Cairo Geniza Targum manuscript, or the the Palestinian fragments of that manuscript, which is called Manuscript AA, in Exodus twelve thirteen says, quote, "My word will see the blood. My word will see the blood." Now. This correlates with 1 John 5, 8, which says the spirit, the water, and the blood are in agreement. There the water is the water of the word in Ephesians 5, 26. It is a cleansing flood and not a drowning pool. There was an old movie with Paul Newman called The Drowning Pool, and he and a lady were both in it, and it was coming up to their neck, and then you'll have to find out what happened. He plays the detective, Lou Harper, the drowning pool. The word of God is not a drowning pool, but a cleansing flood. As the word is a judge of the heart's determination, listen carefully to this, here comes the blood and the blood groove that runs down the blade. There is water of the word. And out of his side came what? Blood and water in John 19.34. And John, the beloved disciple, saw that and testified to it that you would believe in John 19.35. There is a water that is the water of the word. It's cleansing. It's sanctifying. And as the word is a judge of the heart's determination, the blood of Christ is that which purges or cleanses the conscience from dead works. In Hebrews 9.14, 
It produces a repentance from dead works in Hebrews 6.1. And it actually cleanses the conscience of the need to do dead works, like give up things for Lent, or like do good things because you did a bad thing, and maybe the good thing you do will assuage your conscience. That's a dead work. It's a work that proceeds from the evil of guilt. The conscience is purged from dead works and cleansed from it by the blood of Christ. Again, the conscience happens to be on the fourth level of the soul's intentional consciousness. So as the word of God is a judge of the heart's determinations, the blood of Christ is that which purges or cleanses the conscience from dead works, Hebrews 9.14, and actually produces repentance from dead works in Hebrews 6.1 and 2, and that means that it creates a cessation from Adamic deeds in, a, in Hebrews 4.3 and 4.11. We who enter into rest cease from our own works, our works in Adam, our ontology in Adam. So in closing, the fourth level of consciousness, the intentional, rational consciousness, includes that old friend of ours, the conscience. When the scripture says that the blood of Christ cleanses the conscience from dead works, it means that the intentional consciousness has been purged of the resolution to have to do them, the determination to do them. And for these Hebrew recipients of the Hebrew homily, that includes going back to performance of animal sacrifices in the temple. And so those works are dead. It means to do works that are in themselves dead. It doesn't mean works that cause death. It means works that are dead. Dead works are not only sins, and they do cause death, but in the eyes of this writer, so are the works of the law, as in the eyes of Paul, the works of the law. They're dead works too, including the offering of animal sacrifices in the temple. They're dead because they died when Jesus died as the once and for all and forever sacrifice for sins. And they are sinful because their performance is now against God's command. Maybe it wasn't before, it is now. So Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity for you to make your word known to us. Create a willingness in us and renew a right spirit in us Create a clean conscience in us, Father. Do this in your people so that we are not those who do things that cause the slander of Christianity, but we act in a way of a higher integration of human living by which people see a new idea about love and life and even the solution to problems within social, political activities and between people in this world. It's the love of Christ poured out by the Holy Spirit into the hearts of people so that we may overcome evil with this ultimate good called love and not by reaction and retaliation, something we'll consider in our next message. Father, we entrust our spirits to you and commit our souls to you, a faithful creator, and we do so in Jesus' name as we also present our bodies as a living sacrifice.
so that in your activity of the word, you can separate our soul from our spirit so that in these bodies we may live a life that honors you. And we do this, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.